The mother, the father, the child, the stranger. He's going to harm us. It's Ivy he's after. The past, the present, the nightmare. <coughs> the terror. I saw her burn her hands on a cold window. <coughs> the movie. Audrey Rose, the novel of reincarnation, is now a spellbinding motion picture. The pain, the anger, the trial, the test. Your eyelids are getting so heavy. The question. Audrey. The answer. Never the child! The torment. <laughs> the truth. We're both a part of this child. It will alter your ideas about life after death forever. Welcome. It's another Halloween special on 70 movies we screamed at in the 70s. I'm Mike McPadden. I wrote uh, T-Movie Hell and I wrote Heavy Metal Movies. I'm in Chicago. Joining me from Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, my name is Ben Reiser. I work at the University of Wisconsin-Madison where I have the two greatest jobs in the world. Showing people movies at the UW Cinematheque and then once a year at the Wisconsin Film Festival. Uh, I'm, I couldn't be happier, even in the midst of this pandemic and everything else that's going on <laughs> right now. See, we're getting off to a good a good start here. Everybody's in Positivity. a good mood. Positivity. I'm in a special good mood because our guest tonight is an author, writer, editor, podcaster, insanely prolific Blu-ray commentator, Um. All around fantastic individual who I'm happy to know. And, and I, I don't even know how to go through your credits. And usually I've been, I, usually what we do or what I do is I just, I just ask people to introduce themselves and start talking about themselves. And I've been told it's a bit stark as a way to get the show rolling. Who, who said but that? Sam Deegan. Who, 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 who told you it was stark? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Uh, Sam Deegan's here, everybody. Uh, Say hi, hi, Sam. From from uh, Philadelphia. Yes, indeed. Where currently the city is on lockdown because of riots. So fun times. Riots tonight. Yeah. Wow. Did something happen? That. Yep. The cops killed yet another black person. Holy moly! This is a bad scene, man. It's been a fun year. <laughs> <laughs> That's no good. So, Sam, tell us about the books you've written. Just name um, them. This a lot. Well, so I'm glad that you didn't fully make me introduce myself because for whatever reason, either at the beginning or end of any podcast, when someone says like, so tell me what you're up to, my brain just goes blank. Right. And I'm like, I, what have I done? I don't know. I well, haven't you done never anything. stopped. So I can see how you couldn't <laughs> keep track of everything. So. Yeah. I just black it all out as soon as it's finished. Um, good. So I contributed to your teen movie, Hell Book. Um, uh, so good. Vansploitation. 
Yes, gotta love Van Noy's Boulevard. Very um, much. I edited and co-wrote a book on Jean Rollin, where all the other contributors are female film critics. Uh, I wrote a What's monograph. the name of that book? Uh, it's... What is the name of that book? Oh, it's Lost, <laughs> Lost Girls, Girls, the phantasmagorical <laughs> cinema of Jean Rollin. <laughs> and, uh, um, really an achievement. An, an incredible book, an incredible looking book, an incredible reading book. Yeah, it's so gorgeous. I mean, it yeah. was so spectacular. Optical put it out and the layout is from Kayla Janice and she did such an incredible job. I mean, there are like, even if you hate all of our writing styles, there are so many like rare photos from his films, from behind the scenes. And I mean, he's one of those directors. I, I think a lot of my career doesn't really have a general theme as you said it's like i i talk about a, i talk or write about a lot of different kinds of films but i think my favorite projects are often where i get to defend the work of somebody who i feel is underappreciated or kind of maligned and you know growing up i didn't really know anyone who liked Roland's films everybody sure. talked about them like they were trash so being yeah. able to do a whole book where we cover every single one of his films like one of the chapters i wrote was all about his hardcore films and so it's like literally all of the available films are covered in the book so that was exciting to do so it's an achievement and i mean you're writing your research it's it's incomparable and as an art object it's just breathtaking so everybody get Thank Lost you. Girls. It's so good. And M, tell us another book you wrote. Oh, yeah. I did a monograph on Fritz Lang's <laughs> M. Yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah, that other thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which I also spend a lot of time writing about kind of serial killers in cinema and violence in cinema, particularly the way it's connected to modernity and urban life. And so that was just a pleasure to write. I wrote it for, uh, it used to be, I forget what the new publisher is, but it used to be Columbia University Press. It's this series called Devil's Advocates, where people basically take a classic horror film and really dive deep on it. And I kind of had to argue my case as to why M should be considered, because I feel like people think of it maybe more as like a urban thriller than an outright horror movie. But like, you wouldn't have... Like, all of the serial killer movies to come after it where there's a killer as the protagonist. Right. Like, it all started there, so. Can I take us off-road with M for a moment? Can I also? Mm -hmm. I'll have my own off-road M topic, but go ahead, Mike. Okay, we, we, I was probably overlap, Mr. Riser. Oh, okay. So, when I was uh, attempting to get into SUNY Purchase to go to film school, where I would then meet Mr. Ben Riser, uh, they show you the opening of M, and they ask you to write. This was part of the... Uh, I guess the audition process to get into the film school. And uh, they ask you to write the next scene after you hear the mother calling wow. for the little girl. So I wrote a scene where M has taken the girl and beams up onto a spaceship. And like everybody's named like K or like Y4. They all have names like that. And M is putting these children in a zoo on another planet. I did not get into <laughs> film school. Which, Isn't that awesome, though? Like, that like, is awesome, and it makes me think, like, not to jump too far ahead to right. Robert Wise, but it makes me think of, like, the Star Trek and V'ger and... <laughs> Ooh, V'ger. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, I fucking hate V'ger, but we can talk about that more later. <laughs> so, Ben, take take us further afield with M, please. Yeah, my, that my M had nothing to do with that. And I'm trying to remember if I had to do the same thing when I um, auditioned for this film department, which was it would have been two years, I guess, before you did. I don't know. Yeah. It's possible. But I wonder if that's... Is that why Aaron Mavakian said to you, you needed to get some... Life I needed more life. So, so the, the Aaron Mavaki, have you uh, seen the movie uh, End of the Road with Stacey Keach and James Earl Jones? Mm-hmm. Which I, I movie I love. And uh, so the director of that film, Aaron Mavakian, was, was the professor who was interviewing me. And he, like, read my thing and he said, eh, you need to get some life experience. Stop <laughs> watching too many horror pictures. Yeah. That's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> my question about M was just a it was it's not even it's not funny or interesting <laughs> just when you were writing your <laughs> monograph about fritz long's M, did you explore joseph losey's remake at all because i'm only mentioning because joseph losey is a wisconsin boy originally and uh i hear i've never seen his version of M, but we showed it at the film festival maybe five years ago i hear it's really good but i don't know it's interesting so i love joseph losey he's probably in my top 10 every once in a while I'll torture myself and try to make a list of my top 10 favorite directors. And I, I don't know why I do this, but he's at least in my top 20 and his version of M I like, but don't love. It's very different. I would say definitely watch it just because he's such a master craftsman. I mean, I think it was early in his career enough that he wasn't doing some of the like wilder 70s type of things that mm. he did when he was a more mature director but to his credit I think he was sort of saddled with a project and tried to make it his own film mm -hmm. which of course is you know what always got him into trouble <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so back on road uh you're you edit a magazine yes Diabolique I've learned how to pronounce it mostly from yeah. uh, your partner Kat is Diabolique <laughs> well, it's it's easy for me to uh -huh. draw a distinction because growing up outside of Philadelphia, there is this group of guys of, of four or five guys called Exhumed Films who sure. put on these really amazing uh, heroes like all print. Uh, film mm -hmm. screenings. I've been going to them since I was 15 and it's how I found out about so many of these things. But two of them opened their own kind of Blu-ray import company called Diabolic. And so whenever anyone looks at me and they're like, do, how do I pronounce which one? I'm like, this one is Diabolic, like the Mario <laughs> Bava film. And this one is Diabolique, like the Clouseau film. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I, I, I had that same problem. Uh, at Cinematheque, where people say all kinds of stuff. Cinematique, uh, I hear a lot. And I don't care. I don't correct anybody. Well, ask yeah. Kat to pronounce it and just go with however she says it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's so, safe, too. <laughs> yeah. Kat and I are very fascinated with one another's accents. So I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you do a bunch of podcasts. Lay it yes. on us. Uh, so Kat and I, and I'm sure anybody who's listened to this show, I'm sure knows who she is because she was on that great uh, Where's Papa, right? That's right. Where's Papa and the Jerk. Our salute to yes. Carl Reiner. Did we do those uh, all in one day? I can't remember. Did we do both of those episodes in one show? Yeah. Yikes. God. Yeah. Damn. We That's didn't split it up. That's a long day. <laughs> it was epic. 
Well, we so had she cat and I... you carrying us the whole way, so we were fine. <laughs> I mean, she's used to recording for, like, long stretches of time. Uh, we have Daughters of Darkness, which we started a couple of years ago, and sort of to our frustration, since both of our careers took off and we're both, you know, very busy on different continents, recording regularly gets away from us, but we just came out with our first video episode that is is on uh, Valerian Barovchik's Behind Combat Walls. And we really liked it. It's doing really well. It somehow has a thousand views already, probably more at this point on YouTube. And hilariously, two thumbs down, which is my favorite <laughs> thing ever. <laughs> like, I don't know why, wow. but that just makes me so happy that we pissed off two people enough that they were like, I'm going to give this yeah, a thumbs I'm gonna, down. I'm going to click. Let me grab my mouse and click. <laughs> Let them know. So hopefully we're supposed to record again this week. So hopefully we'll get back to a more regular recording schedule. Uh, and my other podcast is called Evil Eye, which is all about goth movies, which is a very arbitrary descriptor. But so far we've mostly covered films that have kind of like goth subculture characters but we're also going to talk definitely about like gothic literary adaptations and things mm -hmm. like that and i'm on you the projection booth all that, the time. that seems like a, a book that i would i want you to write now so uh, add yeah. this to your list please i will <laughs> we also spent a little bit of time on the episode that we did about pretty maids all in a row Trying to figure out what this New York Times critic meant when he said, here's another example of oh, yeah. high school gothic, um, American yeah. high school gothic. And we're trying to figure out what, when he was watching Pretty Maids and All in a Row, was he thinking of with other examples of such a thing? And I think we came up with what? Yeah. Lord Love a Duck, maybe? And Lord Love a Duck was what we kept going back to, but we, we, we'll take a deeper dive. At some yeah, point. I'm not sure what, like, that could mean so many different things. It could mean, like, when I think of anybody talking about teenage gothic, it just makes me think of traditional gothic literature where right. all the protagonists mm. are, like, 15-year-old girls who sure. don't have any mothers and they're, you know, wandering around some chateau. Well, um, Sam has set us down the right path, I yeah. think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, but he did say high school, but maybe he means gothics that people would read in high school. Maybe that's what he was. Trying well, to say. I, I think I think maybe what he could mean is those sorts of general narratives updated to a modern era, where something like Mirror Mirror, where mm -hmm. it's about a teenage girl who literally is part of a goth subculture, right. but she also has this sort of family dysfunction and is going through kind of a modern version of what characters would go through in one of those 18th right. or 19th century novels, but your guess is as good as mine. I have to say gothic is a word that it just, it can be spread so thin and apply to so many things that yeah. it baffles me a lot. So I'm glad you're on the case, Sam. <laughs> so... I also want to say this about Sam Dagan. She knows more about movies. This is like, there are a bunch of these people who are like, consider, you know, younger than I am, who just like, they have crammed so much knowledge into their heads. It stupefies me. So well, that's I, uh, what happens when you have no social life. You don't sleep very much and you just like, consume media. Well, no, no, I did that too. <laughs> but I was nowhere near, I'm still nowhere near where you are and, and Heather and, 
Even cats younger than me. <laughs> I'm very old. So. Yeah, uh, when when you originally sent me the invite, I was going to say, I hate to tell you guys, but I saw literally no movies in the 70s because I was not alive. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, I was never going to ask how old you actually are, but you just answered that question. It's possible that your soul was passed along from somebody who oh, was alive in the 70s. <laughs> the eerie time. I like go. what you did there. <laughs> yes. Oh, we are going to talk about Audrey Rose tonight. And uh, I'm going to let me just start off and say, I have not hated a film that we've covered on this show until (laughs) Audrey Rose. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, but we'll have a good time with it. I'm glad that I watched it. I had never sat down and watched it the whole way through. It was frequently on Channel 11 when I was growing up uh, in New York City. And. I saw the you know her freakout scenes many times, and if you, in my mind it existed as just sort like of a montage of those scenes of her burning her hand on the window. I didn't know it was the world's slowest courtroom drama for the most part. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, they really did not do it any favors with that marketing campaign. No, which is awesome. It's so cool looking. The girl, the flames, the gravestone, the, the But weird it's for a different movie. Completely, yeah. Yeah. It's like it's basically like a marketing campaign for the changeling, but three years early. Excellent. And for point. the wrong yeah. movie. Yeah. <laughs> so Ben, what's your experience? Well, um, I, I saw it in the seventies for sure. I saw it and I'll tell you why I saw it. Because uh it was one of these uh, when I was in fifth and sixth grade, the big thing was uh, walking around school with uh, paperback horror novels. That's the, it. The first book I ever bought was the um, silver-covered, like literally shiny, like a mylar, like a mirror-covered paperback of The Shining, um, which right. I bought at like a, I guess it's a drugstore. They used to have these stores. I don't think they have them anymore where you could get like a seltzer <laughs> there was like a fountain soda but you could also but there was also like a rack of like almost like an airport bookstore rack yes it was a wire stand with a wire books stand on. Yeah, with, paperbacks. with paperbacks and 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 you know that that shiny metallic cover and the fact that it was like supposed to be scary was enough for me and i was either in fifth or sixth grade and i bought it and i read it and i loved it and then I tried to figure out what else there was. First of all, I didn't. I, it never occurred to me that these books existed in in hardcover fashion before they were paperbacks. And I'm still not actually sure if all of them most did. didn't. Yeah, right. But the There's Shining, an incredible I think, did. book called. Yes, it definitely did. But uh, Paperbacks from Hell by Grady so Hendrix, good. which is again another like monumental achievement where he just he just uh, curated all of them. And covers them all. Yeah, in this it's book. amazing. It's one of my favorite books to have come out in the last couple of years. I agree. I mean, like the past decade, it's, it's another yeah. towering achievement. I need to get that. That sounds great. Yes, you do. But I, and I interviewed him, and I asked him if he read the books, and he was like, "There was some points where I could hit six books a day." I mean, those books. Yeah. To be fair, like if you're somebody who's a fast reader, which. I, I am, and I have to assume he is. Right. It's like you could bang out one of those books in an yeah. hour. So if you're trying <laughs> to do it, I'm sure if you yeah. if you read all of those in a year, it would melt your fucking brain. Right. But so I'm not saying you should, but, but I think you could. <laughs> right. Well, so the, or just let Grady do it for you. But go ahead, Ben. My memory was that that the that the boys I knew were not 
reading and they weren't walking around with these books. But all the girls I knew and were friends with, everyone had a copy of Flowers in the Attic. And and a, a, a few <laughs> yes. of them had uh, Audrey Rose. And I, just, I remember Audrey Rose and I remember borrowing right. it, I think probably from my friend Robin, Dan and reading some if not all of it and but but it became like in my in my brain those were the three paperbacks i have the most memory of like just being everywhere every time anybody opened a book pack a book bag at school that one of those things fell out of it flowers in the attic audrey rose and the shining and so when audrey rose came out as i have the i was gonna say i have the exact same experience my cousin mary who was about five years older than me she and her friends so i was very interested in them because they were like 12 and 13 years old, um, obsessed with Audrey Rose, obsessed with the book, obsessed with telling each other, like, you know, I know a girl who had this happened to it. And everything. so, <laughs> yeah, so I was really plugged into it and ready when the movie came out. Yeah. And I want to say that for the most part, all of these adaptations that wound up being made from these from these horror novels were shit. It's not like Audrey Rose, the film ad- adaptation stands out as a particularly bad example. I mean, the flowers in the attic movie has got to be as bad or worse. And I think maybe the original book <laughs> is, is worse than Audrey Rose too. Although Audrey Rose, the book, is I no recommend getting the Blu-ray with the Cat Ellinger commentary for flowers in the attic. Okay. That'll change your tune, Mr. Rogers. All right. Okay. It might. But I also felt that way about all almost all of the Stephen King books that got adapted. I mean, yeah, there's the there's Carrie and um Shining. Although at the time I hated the Shining when Shining came out. I was, you know, I read the book at least twice by then and was just like, what the fuck did they do to my book? Um and Stephen King felt the same way, although he also felt that same way about The Dead Zone, which I think is definitely my favorite film version of a Stephen King book. And so I don't know what, I don't know what his problem is with that. I think Agreed. That, I think that Cronenberg actually figured out ways to improve that novel. And I think it, it pissed King off. I think he was not happy with the. Oh, he, I'm he, sure. He de-stupided a Stephen <laughs> King novel. Yeah. Which is a real accomplishment. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like him and De Palma and Zippo. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, the book was around and then, do you, okay. So, Oh, Sam, you're not going to remember this, but uh, Ben definitely will. So there were commercials for the Haunted Mansion at Long Branch mm-hmm. in New Jersey. Yeah. And it was like, it was a big, giant haunted house on the amusement pier in Long Branch, New Jersey, um, with live actors in it, with teenagers in it. And they would run these commercials, and they were super cool. And at one point in the commercial, they show like this this girl who's probably like 12 or 13, who's real creepy, just kind of creeping around the basement or something. And my uncle said, look, it's Audrey Rose. So that always stuck with me. I've always chosen to believe that that girl was Audrey Rose in the Haunted Mansion. And uh, there was also Brigantine Castle. And they both burned down. Did you ever make it to the Haunted Mansion, Ben, or Brigantine Castle? I did not. I did not. Twice I went to the Haunted Mansion. Twice I chickened out. Really? I couldn't go. Yeah, I mean, I was under 10 at that point, so I was just scared. But how did that work? At what point uh, did we you- were on? Well, the one I was just like, we got to, uh, to the boardwalk, and I was like, forget it. And another one, I was with my Uncle Angelo, and we were in line, and then there was like a girl who had like kind of Alice Cooper makeup and like a hood, you know, like a scary robe. And she was the ticket taker, and she'd just come up and stare at you. And was like, <laughs> look into your eyes. And I was like, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out. Nope, 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 nope. <laughs> so. And so- what happened? Did you did you have to wait in the car? 
No, no, it was a whole amusement. It was a boardwalk. It oh, was a Jersey okay. Shore. Uh, so you just, you just kept so moving went, and you know, did your own. One of the bumper cars. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did you ever go to Wildwood? I have never made it to Wildwood to my tragic so regret. So in the 70s and probably up through the early 90s, there was a similar thing called Dracula's Castle or Dracula's Domain. Mm-hmm. Dracula's Castle, I think. And they would oh, also Cass- have... I think it was Castle Dracula. Was it not that? It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. it was so terrifying. There yeah. were just like kids hysterically crying on it, outside of it. And they yeah. had similar commercials. Yeah. And I loved it. I mean, yeah. no surprise, but... Yeah, it was scary. And my, my Aunt Carol went in the Haunted Mansion. And um, at one point, her friend said to her, hey, Carol, come here. And then all the, the ghouls in there kept going, Carol, <laughs> Carol. <laughs> so uh, all that was scarier than Audrey Rose just talking about that. Um, I do Pretty much add- everything is scarier than Audrey Rose. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was watching this and complaining about it, and I fell asleep twice watching oh. this. <laughs> so um, my wife, uh, Rachel McPadden, was uh, continually chiding me because at age five, she was obsessed with this movie. Really? And she would imitate it. She would do the complete freak out scene. And then she said she would wrap up her hands like Audrey Rose when she has like the wrapped hands that look like that's amazing. You should probably have her instead of me on this episode. (laughs) Well, she's holding out. She has a special movie that she's waiting for. It's coming to Blu-ray soon. So, um, but I wanted you on because of your connection to, um, I mean, horror in general, but, but you know, from a, a female point of view. And I wanted to ask you about why you think this tapped into uh, the young women of the 70s, the girls of the 70s, I should say, you know, like, you know, preteens and teenagers. So that was that was my motivation here. Well, As- this is a difficult one for me to talk about because... Like, there are so many different, and I'm sure we can get to all of them, or most of them, but I think about this movie two very different ways in my head. One way is it utterly fails as a horror movie and as an exorcist ripoff, which is what everyone (laughs) thinks it is. Right. And I get why you found it boring. Yeah. And I'm sure we could, we'll talk about that side of it more, but I think there's also a part of me that really likes this movie because I think it belongs more with that kind of grieving parents subgenre. Things like, you know, Don't Look Now and Mm -hmm. stuff that we'll talk about more later. And I I think weirdly, and you're going to have to go with me for a second on this one, it reminds me much more of films or books that have to do with what we might call the feminine uncanny, like things like Picnic at Hanging Rock, where there's not overt horror, but there are strange thing that strange things that happen to young women often around the time that they're reaching sexual maturity. And so I think you could talk about it as a movie about grief, which it definitely is, and a movie about that kind of feminine uncanny sense. And I don't know if either of you are fans of E.M. Farster or David Lean, but I 
I'm obsessed with a passage to India and I don't know why. It makes no sense. It seems like something that I should not like or be interested in. I have a weird thing for historical epics, so that might be why. But there, like the key scene in A Passage to India involves the female protagonist who's she's not she's an adult. She's like, I want to say it's been a while since I've read it or seen it, but she's like in her early 20s. But she's very sexually inexperienced, very naive and she travels to India and she has an experience where she goes in this cave that is very picnic at hanging rock like where you're not sure what exactly happened in the cave. Like, was she assaulted, which is kind of how some people read it. Did she just have a really overwhelming, like Kantian sublime type experience that like traumatized her? And that scene in a passage to India makes me think a lot of Audrey Rose, especially this time around watching it. Like I hadn't seen it since I was a teenager when I hated it. Mm-hmm. And so watching it now, like I think there are certain movies that you can't see until either you're older or maybe you've experienced grief or something. Like I, I felt the same way about the hunger for a long time where I just didn't engage with it as a teenager. So I'm sorry if I'm rambling, but it's really hard for me to like have definitive thoughts about Audrey Rose because I feel so divided about it. Like it's more interesting than it has a right to be, (laughs) but it's also not a horror movie. That's why we had Sam on everybody. (laughs) Yeah. And and one thing I I was tempted to say a little bit earlier is that it's, not only is it not a horror movie, probably, but it's not. I mean, it's more than one movie in one. I mean, it's one. It feels to me like it's, it's like more, five movies. Yes, yeah. and but it's but it is kind of one movie up until maybe just around the halfway point, and that's this movie about Anthony Hopkins and his relationship with this couple and their daughter, and what's what you know. And the question is, what is his story? What does he mean to do with them? What does it mean for them to have him in their lives? You know, and then at about a, the halfway point, it sort of splits off into all these other things, and, and, and including this ridiculously boring courtroom drama, and then the sort of the last 15 minutes of it that are in that, what is that? It's like a clinic or a hospital or something? Where Where is that happening, the whole last it's act? Supposed to be a, it's supposed to be a, like a children's psychiatric hospital, yeah. but to think... That (laughs) you would bring an entire jury to a, (laughs) maybe we're getting a little, but like, it's so insane to think that you would write a scene into a movie where like, certainly there are millions of court cases where someone has to be interviewed by a psychiatrist. That part's totally normal. Right. But it's like the psychiatrist is allowed to perform this experimental <laughs> procedure on a child that he right. admits he's never done before, but <laughs> says, oh, it's totally safe. It's going to be fine. Yeah. And says, like, it will cause her pain, but, like, she'll walk it off. And you're like, what? <laughs> and then not only is the entire jury called in to observe, but both like the plaintiff and the defendant are there. And it's like, would Anthony Hopkins's character be allowed to like leave jail and sit in like, it just, it's like, what the fuck were they thinking with the last act of that script? (laughs) Nothing Anthony Hopkins character does from the first scene would be allowed period. 
It so, makes no sense. You'd never be allowed to walk around with that fake beard in New York City. Is that is that one of the things? <laughs> He's kind of hot with that beard. He looks better with the beard. When he shaves it off, he really looks like Fats the Dummy from uh, <laughs> from Magic. I was like, it looks more like Fats than it looks like Anthony Hopkins. Um, but the thing with the with the hypnot the the hypnotherapist or whatever it was at the end reminded me of the. Have you guys ever seen Five Million Years to Earth, the Hammer Doctor yes. Quatermass movie? So you go through this whole thing, and there's these <laughs> devil aliens. Yeah. The last 15 minutes, Dr. Quaisman is like, wait a minute. My friend's been working on this machine that records memories, dreams, brain th- things you think about. He can just make a film of what you're thinking about. Yeah. Let's go get that. Yeah. And then they bring it in, and they're like, oh, here it is. Now we have the whole thing. But, like, but there, it's awesome. Oh, it's completely awesome. But I, I did. it does occur to me, like, Dr. Dr. Quatermass, why didn't you do this an hour and a half ago? But here's the thing that yeah. that last sequence... But it's a, it's a cool movie. The, the thing that that last sequence totally resembles so many other screen representations of this is is um, watching uh, somebody be killed on death row. It's like they have that booth where the audience gets to see the guy in the electric chair mm-hmm. right. and then he's executed. Yeah. And, and that, you know, and that's this, and, the, and every single bit of the end sequence is that. And with the, res, you know, with what happens, it's sort of, okay, you've, you've reminded us of like yeah. a death row sequence and now we know why, but it doesn't make any sense. And You're I right. don't get why that, tr- yeah, no, it makes no sense. And you, if I hate to say this and put this out in the world because I fucking hate remakes. Yes, with you. Say it. But if somebody remade this, this like, this is, I think, one of my sort of rare exceptions where I think it would be really interesting to see a remake of this where there's a lot more ambiguity around the Anthony Hopkins character because the way the film is now, his character, it's just like, Point blank, he is a good guy. Reincarnation is real. Everything he's saying is totally reasonable. And he makes the husband look like a fucking asshole because the husband doesn't doesn't automatically just believe that this psychopath is telling the truth. (laughs) And so I think if you had made a more complicated, ambiguous script where sometimes the character was sympathetic and other times it's like, here's this stalker. They just like made him too trustworthy or something. Well, I agree. One, the one, of the, one interesting thought I had got. Well, the one that the one thing that works in Anthony Hopkins' favor is you identifying him as the good guy is just how fucking hideous John Beck is as an actor and as a father and a husband oh in this movie. <laughs> so you you already know who the bad guy in this movie is. So there's no there's no there's no space for Anthony Hopkins just to, from his to, mustache. Yeah, and I'm all, I'm totally down with the idea of a remake, but you need to keep Norman Lloyd as Mr. Burns, aka the the experimental psychiatrist. He's got to stay. In the remake. And I don't know that he has too much is time. Is he still left. with us? He is, I believe, but I, you know, if not, we'll, re- we'll reincarnate him. Yeah. So uh, I was going to say the great. one interesting thought I had about this was, you know, so did maybe Anthony Hopkins did he trigger all this in Ivy? Like either no, because there's there's a scene where the mother brings up the fact that at specific intervals in Ivy's life, she's gone mm-hmm. through these yeah. weird 
experiences where she has these nightmares and she dissociates or whatever it is right. that she's doing. And the right. father is like, well, pshaw, I'm going right. to go comb my mustache. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but I thought, you know, perhaps like bringing it to fruition. And then I thought that, it, you know, either in that she actually is the reincarnation of Audrey Rose or just that she's psychologically disturbed and his presence and his insistence on this explanation for her disturbance did that plant some kind of seed within this child that then erupted into her having this uh, psychotic episode that killed her? Well, that's why it makes me think of those kind of female uncanny type movies sure. where you have these young, impressionable female characters who, and actually I, it made me think of, so there's this really great movie not to plug myself right now, yes, but do it. there's this really great movie called I Start Counting uh, that I just did a commentary for. It's about to come out on Blu-ray for the first time ever through this new label called Fun City, who's doing it as a collaboration with Vinegar Syndrome. We know um, them well. I Start Counting is a much better film than Audrey Rose. No offense, Robert Wise, wherever you are. Uh, <laughs> but it's a serial killer movie that's really unconventional because it's all from the perspective of this young teenage girl who has a crush on her older foster brother and comes to believe that he is the serial killer in question. And it's like way more of a horror film than Audrey Rose is, but a lot of it is also kind of this fantasy coming of age story where she imagines these things that aren't real. And she has this whole like scenario in her head of he is the serial killer, but I'm going to rescue him from his impulses and take him away. And we'll live happily ever after in this like house where we lived when we were kids. And it's really fucked up, but I think it hits at exactly what you're talking about in a way more effective way where it's like, okay, here's this young woman who's unstable either because she's just lonely or mental illness or for whatever reason. There, there's also that recent movie. I don't know if you guys saw it called the falling, I think no. where it, I want to say it came out five or six years ago and it stars one of the, one of the, like female leads from Game of Thrones, which I don't watch enough to know what her name actually is. Oh, is but it Maisie Williams? Yes. Yes, um, I just saw the cover for that on Facebook. Yeah. It's it's sort of along the lines of Picnic at Hanging Rock, where it's like all these girls get this like fainting sickness. And wow. it's suggested that maybe witchcraft is to blame, maybe mental illnesses. It's not a perfect movie, but it's definitely right worth watching in terms of like films of the last 10 years. But I wish that that element that they'd gone further with it in Audrey Rose, because earlier when you asked me, like, why do you think this took off with young girls and teenagers? The answer is, I don't fucking know, because right. this, <laughs> this it's like I I can guess like it. If you're 12 or 13, it's scary without actually being scary. Sure. It sort of like edges into that territory mm -hmm. without really giving anyone nightmares, I would assume. Right. But like, it's not really a movie from the perspective of Ivy or Audrey, if, if that's who she is. It's like, right. it seems like every once in a while it's going to be, especially in the third act. But it's really more about the parents. So it's like, yeah. well, I don't know why teenage girls would 
Like, I don't know why your wife as a five-year-old would be like, Audrey Rose, that's me. (laughs) That's one of the things that plagues me about this movie is we never really can figure out, I couldn't figure out whose perspective this film is from and or who's the protagonist in this film. For a while, I thought it was Marsha Mason and then maybe it's Ivy slash Audrey, but it really- For a while, it is Marsha Mason. Yeah. But then it's not. Then then it's not. I would say early on it's Marsha Mason, and then it gets lost. Yeah. Well, I just think ultimately I, w- I, I would pick maybe Anthony Hopkins, but it brings up this question as to what is his goal at the beginning of this movie, and is the end of the movie him reaching that goal? I mean, it seems like that's like what happens to Audrey slash Ivy is what he has expected would happen all along, and what he's been right. sort of bracing Marsha Mason for and trying to frame in a positive light that this needs to happen uh and this is why but i i'm i'm sort of guessing i don't even actually know if that's if this is what he expected to happen it's i think the point you made earlier about how the first act or maybe the first half when it all takes place in their apartment is one film that's actually a pretty good film Mm -hmm. that you could have tacked on this 20 minute ending where Anthony Hopkins character kidnaps her and they try to have some sort of exorcism that's it's like if they kept it all in the one location it would be a much more cohesive film but it's like as soon as you get to court it's over now that's how I felt the movie ended and and I mean and what a location that is the Hotel des Artistes I know and that ceiling with the ceiling and they get in as many shots of that ceiling yeah, as they I, possibly can. I, good for good for you, I Robert. Know, I would too. Yeah, that was proper. Mike, do you want to do um, a run a rundown, like a synopsis of the movie? Yeah, uh, I feel bad. We we've talked about the ending before <laughs> yeah. anything else. I mean, I guess I guess so. I kind of feel like we should just keep rolling. So, I mean, okay. real quick, I'll I'll do a two line version of my ten line version. Uh, the movie opens with a fatal car crash. A little girl named Audrey Rose is killed. Uh, six years later, we cut to Marsha Mason and John Beck as a couple in New York. They have an 11-year-old daughter named Ivy, who's played by Susan Swift, who is one of the naturally freakiest-looking children I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> she uh, starts acting weird. She uh, and, and throughout this, uh, Anthony Hopkins, initially in a fake beard, is following him around, inserting himself <laughs> into his life. Okay, I'm going to interrupt here. John, John, uh, the father. John Beck. John Beck. He's a big Frankenstein. Yeah. Little Anthony Hopkins following his wife and child around would have lasted five seconds. This is New York City in the 70s. And I will say I did like the the little color touches of New York in the 70s, like the cops and the cab drivers. And yeah. That one car accident, everybody having the horrific accents like I do. And um, Mike. And then finally, Anthony Hopkins says to them, uh, your daughter, Ivy, is my daughter, Audrey, reincarnated. And he keeps pressing the issue. He kidnaps um, Ivy very briefly. He gets arrested. He ends up on trial. And then he tries to prove that he is actually the daughter of Audrey Rose. This leads to a uh, past life regression therapy that kills young Ivy. And then we get this line from the Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita. There is no end. For the soul, there is never birth, no death. Nor having once been, does it ever cease to be? It is unborn, eternal, ever-existing, undying, and primeval. So that was the quick version. That's a very quick version. I mean, I, it, there were two things that I was reminded of when you were doing that. One is that 
I was trying to make a list of horror movies that start with car accidents. And without even breathing hard, I, I thought of The Descent and The Changeling and that uh, French film, Inside or L'Intuya. Inside. Yeah. Interior. One of my favorites. And I'm sure I'm there's... going to say, sidebar, Inside is the closest I have ever come to vomiting while watching a movie. Really? I had hot puke at the top of my throat. <laughs> have you ever seen Teenage Mother? <laughs> Teenage Mother with... <laughs> <laughs> with the with the live birth of a baby, yeah, that's, that's the closest I've ever come. <laughs> Mike, what were you eating? What were you eating when you were watching Inside? That, that oh God only knows. Yeah. Uh, but it was it wasn't even the because it was gross. And but it's it not was that the, gross. But it was the intensity of the cat and mouse chase the entire time. I think I was yeah. nervous. I love a lot of those n new French extremity movies, yeah. but I found that one kind of boring. Aside wow. from Beatrice Dahl, who I think is like yeah. some sort of angel yeah. on earth and who wow. is great in it. But I was if, just like... If we were on Facebook, Sam Deegan, I would post the Dave Mason music video, We Just Disagree, under that declaration <laughs> of yours. We're, we're allowed to disagree. That's part That's of what right. makes podcasting yes, fun. exactly. No, it's great. No, no, that one I was really, like I said, I almost vomited. So oh, Okay, but Mike. Um, the oh, I want to say Final Destination 3 has one of the greatest car, car, car crash sequences ever. Yeah, it does. Oh, and... I know this movie doesn't open with it, but I'm trying to think of what the hell it's called. That Gaspar No film where the film itself, uh, Enter the Void. Enter it's the Void, Enter the Void. Yes, it's yes, It's excruciating. Yes. Yeah. And I like his earlier films a lot more, but I happened to accidentally catch it twice at a film festival. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Like the the regular version and the super long version that no one needs to sit through. Wow. And the car crash scenes in that movie are like, you feel like you're going through a car crash. They're traumatizing. Yeah. I would agree. I like Unlo all those movies. Yeah. Unlike the Audrey Rose car crash. <laughs> <laughs> Which okay. did make me laugh out loud. But yeah. I'm yes. glad that we're talking about car crashes because my other thing that I wanted to ask you both about um, that Mike brought up is this car accident that Marsha Mason has in a cab with a cab I don't understand what's going on in that scene because it seems like it, we come into that accident and it's, it's already happened and I don't know either I closed my eyes for 10 seconds and missed what it is that's happening that Marsha no, Mason just show gets the aftermath oh yeah it's really confusing I Thank when you. I watched it again yesterday I was like did she have some sort of dissociative episode of her own uh -huh. where she just is like there and doesn't well, know what's going on? When you're on? walking in New York City, I think probably everybody has been to some degree hit by a car Yeah, in the city. I certainly have. And yep. she, it looks like maybe she just got knocked for a loop when they bust in the cab. Or hit. Other. Or hit by someone running, someone on a bike. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. There are many yeah. ways. But in any case, it seems like a crazy thing for the film not to show us, for the film to bring us in at that late stage of whatever that is, because it's a fairly major plot point at that point in the movie that she's mm -hmm. not going to be there in time to pick up Audrey at school. But it also, I had this note, which is that the movie is long and boring, but consistently feels like a bunch of consequential information has been hacked out of it. It's like, it, it goes on and on, but there's all this key information that never seems to arrive. And that is what I find 
so frustrating. Like, so earlier I was saying, I feel two ways about it. One way is that it sucks as a horror movie. The other way is that it's really fascinating as this meditation on grief, blah, blah, blah. But even if you look at it as a meditation on grief and the uncanny feminine, what have you, it still kind of fails because it never really bothers. Like it, there's this scene that's so incredibly frustrating. It almost gives me a headache just to think about it where they finally sit down with Anthony Hopkins at this restaurant in the most awkward sequence ever where he like spills his tea. <laughs> he becomes me just like knocking things over. And <laughs> but, he wants Chinese gunpowder and they don't have it. He but I need to ask about uh, that restaurant at some point too, because I don't understand anything about that restaurant, but go ahead, Sam. None of it makes any sense, but yeah. he starts to explain to them the general plot that you know mike just talked about which is his daughter died at this specific time your daughter was born at this specific time my daughter has been reincarnated into your daughter but then if like that i was like okay i'm on board anthony hopkins is mesmerizing even if he seems to be on valium for much of the film (laughs) (laughs) he he has this enraging dialogue where they ask him like how do you know this where did you get this information from how did you find us and he gives the most frustrating answers like if if he had this dialogue that made him seem delusional that would be better than right. the he he basically sort of says like i don't know who these people were it's like you just right. listen to two complete strangers <laughs> at a party tell you that your child is reincarnated in this. It's like it's almost offensive how little sense it makes. And I love shit that makes no sense. Like right. Deathbed is one of my favorite movies of all time. Bed that it makes eats. no sense. Yes. But this, it's just like if you want us to be on board with this whole plot, you have to give us a really good reason for why we should be. And Anthony Hopkins, I think, is a good enough actor that he could sell it if he had the right dialogue. But like, no wonder the husband is so as much of a dick as he is. No wonder the husband is so against it, because if you look at like logically what happens and what we're told, it's there's no reason to trust him or believe him. No, he's a creep talking crazy. In New York City in the 70s. Oh, I think the other thing, though, that we didn't talk about is the reason that you're supposed to kind of go with it is because Audrey Rose starts to have these like nightmares and tantrums and meltdowns. And the only person who can calm her down is Anthony Hopkins, who inexplicably is like allowed in the apartment, (laughs) which is how he's able to kidnap her. In one of the funny, one of the two funniest sequences in the movie, both having to do with Audrey Rose's freakouts. By the way, it's uh, Ivy. When he really, just goes, that word that that for it's the most Ivy, of the movie. I'm sorry, yes, but that's yeah, a, sorry. It's a very confusing part of the whole. Mo- it, yeah. it, it it brings to it brings to question why is this movie called Audrey Rose? Why was the book called Audrey Rose? I mean, I guess the answer is you know is the ending that it really right. has been Audrey Rose, but it's it still seems right. like an obnoxious title and an annoying way to spend most of the movie <laughs> going, why the fuck is this thing called Audrey Rose? This this girl's name is Ivy. Everyone's saying Ivy a million times over, yeah. but we're stuck in a movie called Audrey Rose. Okay, just yeah. here, now here's a fascinating side note. This movie bombed for as culturally 
uh, you know, dominant as it's been. People know the name Audrey Rose. They know it's about a reincarnated girl. They know about it made on a budget of four million. It made two million dollars. It was a major bomb. Sure. It's one of those weird things that just stuck around. It's just so baffling to me because there are so many other movies that take a similar premise, but in most of them, the child has actually died. Like, Don't Look Now and uh, The Changeling. I mean, those are both, I think, masterpieces. They're masterpieces, both of them, yeah. And the way that the script is set up is... The whole time you're like, okay, this isn't actually happening. This parent is just going mad with grief, which is understandable. And even if you're not a parent, which I am not, you still find it really sympathetic. But in this, it's like the fucking kid is alive and you're just like, all right, when's she going to die? Can we we get this over with? (laughs) But I wanted to say the two great comedy sequences in this movie to me are... The first Audrey Ivy freakout, which she's burning her hands on the windows, and uh, Anthony Hopkins calms it down by going, Audrey, 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 Audrey. It is so frustrating if you, if so, let's say that you want to give someone alcohol poisoning, invite them over, and have an Audrey Rose drinking game mm-hmm. where anytime someone says daddy, father, or Audrey Rose, yeah. take a tiny sip of That'll alcohol, and you'll be dead by the end of the movie. Well, anytime anybody repeats the same word more than once in a, in a single sentence or scene, you would be you would be dead. You would be dead because right. that's all that happens. People pick a word and then say it 50 fucking times and then the scene is over. <laughs> now, the it's, other sequence uh, is the music only shot through the window. I love the that apartment. scene. I don't think that's fun. I, I think that's that I think that's a really I effective. I completely way. loved it, but it made me think of like a Jerry Lewis. Yeah, uh, it is because they're falling down the stairs. They're, they're falling down the stairs. Yes. I mean, it just and he would do it the same way. No sound effects, just music kind of punctuating every bump and bruise. I completely loved it. I was dying. I shouldn't be laughing so hard right now, but it's like, it is, it's meant to be very, very kind of traumatizing where, but it's like, here's a grown woman with a skinny 11 year old (laughs) and it would be different. Like the, I think the exorcist does something similar where it's like, here's an adult woman and her child and she can't control her child, but you're given an immediate set of rules that are established where you know that there's superhuman strength, there's something going on. But in this, it's just like a kid is like (laughs) flailing her arms. Like, why can't she just like put her in a bear hug till she chills out? Well, because when she does put her hands on her, she almost shakes her to death. And it's like, that's the biggest, the biggest moment of child abuse in this whole movie up until Norman Lloyd shows up is Marsha Mason shaking her. I mean, I thought she was going to break her neck. No wonder the kid is traumatized. Yeah. Yeah. I have one other question, just a dumb, like, interior logic of this movie question, which, of course, there is none. There isn't any. Why? (laughs) Why does Anthony Hopkins wear a fake beard for the first part of the movie? Who? How? Why is he disguising himself? Nobody knows who the fuck he is. What's the difference? Like, he is is following strangers around. What does he need a beard for? Also, I don't know about you guys, but... You would think that you could manage to follow a stranger 
and plenty oh. of stalkers do this plenty of detectives do this without being five fucking feet from them standing outside the child's school door as she's coming out of like, class can't yeah. you stand across the street or something yeah, <laughs> yeah it's manhattan you can blend in it's easy you totally could yeah it's his beard basically says i'm a fucking stalker yeah <laughs> All right, so shall we move on to Robert Wise? Talk a little bit about the director, Robert Wise. Yes, please. And I have to assume that the only reason so much of this happened is because he was married for many decades and his wife passed away like a year or two before this was made. So maybe he was still... Mm. Ah, he, interesting. Maybe yeah. he was in some kind of like cloud of grief. and He right. got remarried the same year that Audrey Rose came out, but maybe while he was shooting it, he, that, that's really all I got for an explanation. Well, about... But you did mention uh, <laughs> Robert Wise's directorial debut, which is when we were kind so, of emailing. I love Robert Wise, partly because there are so few directors who genuinely jump from genre to genre. And there are definitely B-movie directors who do it, like right. people like Anthony Mann and, and stuff like that. Right. But there are very few A-list directors who have either masterpieces or widely regarded films in super different genres. And he has a huge film in probably every genre. I mean, if I can sound the, And the key word yeah. to me is huge, because the, his huge. productions are epic and massive and they exist both within my mind and i think the public's collective consciousness as these giant presences uh I'm, and it's funny because i feel like if you ask the average person on the street who's robert wise they yeah, would not no, know no but if you yeah. ask people you know have you seen star trek the motion picture have well they'll at least have heard of it have you <laughs> yeah. have you seen the sound of music like that's a yes you, yeah. have you seen the haunting it's it's right. just like these major films and i think as much as i love the sound of music uh, me too me three i think if pressed and i do love a lot of his film noir movies um my favorite, like, unexpected favorite Robert Wise movie might be Curse of the Cat People, which is his mm -hmm. directorial debut, and is similarly but much more effectively about a child who is haunted by this spectral presence and goes through this kind of supernatural traumatizing experience. And there are so many parallels between the two. It, it's weird how it kind of bookends his career a little bit. Sure. Mm -hmm. Could you talk yeah. about a couple of those? Because I, once you mentioned this, I, I rewatched that today and I also, I completely love it. And love it's one it. of the most beautiful movies about childhood, I think. It is. And if you are... Somebody who hasn't seen Curse of the Cat People, it's the perfect Christmas time movie because yep. it's sort of it's it's also really hard to put it in a genre other than to say that it's like kind of much like Audrey Rose. It's kind of a fantasy drama with occult right. undertones, but it also is baffling because it's a sequel to the great. Uh, Val Luton produced film The Cat People but tonally it's totally different the plot is totally different it basically the the premise is Irina the the cat woman from the first movie dies and comes back as a ghost 
and her husband from the first movie has remarried Alice, who was his assistant, but is now his wife. And it's interesting that they got both of those actors to come back. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what makes it feel like a sequel. Of if a at piece. All. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. It's like a very weird version of a sequel. But yeah. they have this daughter who is just a really imaginative loner. And her parents are such fucking assholes about it. Like her parents are kind of the worst. They just make her feel bad about being this kind of lonely dreamer. And her only friend winds up being the ghost of Irina, the, the cat woman who's really nice to her and is almost this kind of like fairy godmother type figure who <laughs> protects her because she gets into some misadventures that I don't necessarily want to give away, right. but it's the same sort of thing with those scenes in Audrey Rose where she starts to walk into the fire where it's right. just like she's so removed from reality that she almost gets herself into trouble. She almost dies in Curse of the Cat People. But it's just so much more, I think, effective and kind of heartbreaking because the kid is the protagonist. Right. And you, it never veers from that. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. And I'm so glad you gave me the inspiration to watch that again. It's today. so good. So, it's great. It really is. It makes no sense. Like, as much as it makes no sense that Audrey Rose is bad, it makes no sense that Curse of the Cat People should be as good as it is. With that title. Yeah. <laughs> Curse of the Cat People. I think that's that's one of my main takeaways from Robert Wise in general, is that he made a ton of films, directed a ton of films, and more than any other director who made that many films that I can think of, he made great films or at least classic films that everyone enjoys and has mm -hmm. seen, and then a bunch of movies that are just terrible. I mean, he also directed The Hindenburg and Audrey Rose. Right. And it's hard for yeah. me to reconcile how how much of a you know a craftsman and how competent he is a lot of the time and how many movies he's made. I mean, Andromeda Strain is one of my favorite movies of all time. And sure. I, I, it's yeah. hard for me to imagine that the guy who directed the first 20 minutes of Andromeda Strain, which for a G-rated or any other rated movie, is one of the most terrifying, disturbing things I've ever seen, managed to so totally bungle any of the sort of horror or suspense elements in Audrey Rose and some of the other films he directed. And then to me, yeah. what I go back to is it just the, the emotional impact every time I, I see West Side Story. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, it's a movie that is alive on the screen. Um, you know, to me, it's, it's it, that energy is so alive and it's so completely humanly convincing to me and, and enrapturing. And... Um, you know, and, and I would say the same about the day the earth stood still. And I mean, you know, he's, he's something else, Robert. Wise. Well, and like to think Curse of the Cat people aside, because it is sort of an oddity. Yeah. It's like this is the man who directed the fucking haunting. Mm -hmm. like, right. Yeah. You would like it's and it's it's weird yeah. because I think the haunting has a lot of the kind of family drama themes that Curse sure. of the Cat people and Audrey Rose have. So it's like, how do you fuck that up? Yeah. Like, not that's not to say that there aren't other horror directors who made a classic and then made a bad movie, but it just, I don't, I don't understand how any of Audrey Rose was greenlit. To be totally honest, like, <laughs> like the as, as we were talking about earlier, you know, that first sequence in the house is great, or has the potential to be great, but. Why would you move it to the 
courthouse? Why would you have that horrifying <laughs> sequence at the end? Like, <laughs> well, why would you move it to the courthouse? And why would you employ every fantastic sort of character actor that you could in New York at that time, from Robert Walden to John fucking Hillerman, um, and yeah. then give them absolutely nothing to do? I've never seen nothing a movie with all of those actors in it with l- as little to do. None of them have even a slight sort of character moment or anything. To Robert Walden to. gets to he gets to imitate Geraldo Rivera. <laughs> <laughs> he does, except yeah, he just he looks frustrated yeah. about being there. But what about Hillerman? About Hillerman, Hillerman doesn't even have a line. There I don't with think. frowning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not even a. I mean, it's like John Beck took his mustache too. He didn't get to have his beautiful Hillerman mustache. Okay, so I want to ask one more question please. though that, yeah. that that haunts me about Audrey Rose. That, that, that I don't understand. You're the only thing that's haunting about Audrey <laughs> well, Rose. <laughs> I don't think I understand even the central conceit of this movie, which is that it's that this is all about Audrey's soul. Ivy is an 11 year old girl, and most of the time, up until we arrive on the scene, she has lived her life as Ivy. Doesn't she right. have a soul? Isn't there an ivy within that body too? Isn't it about these souls battling it out for this body? Or are we supposed to think that Ivy is not a real person? And it's always been Audrey this whole time. And even the even when Ivy is acting just like a normal kid, that's really Audrey? No, so I think the movie is very confused about the answer to that question, but the general premise at the the or sort of general takeaway at the end is there's this really frustrating epilogue where Ivy's mom writes a letter to Anthony Hopkins that basically says thanks for taking our daughter's ashes to India so she yeah. can be reincarnated. Like, first of all, if you believe in reincarnation, <laughs> yeah. it's possible anywhere on the right. planet. You don't have to go to India to perform right. a fucking ritual. Well, just like, like it happened, happened with Audrey Rose. car crash yeah. right, at the beginning. Yes. So it's, it's full of so many of these frustrating questions, but I, it seems to, like, my general understanding is that there are two souls in one kid and it seems like anthony hopkins argument at the beginning is if we work together we can mend the ruptured soul and she can have a normal life Mm. but then it's like the film totally abandons that premise and he goes to court and he just looks very sad the whole movie yeah and i think I wonder if that is also it's it's such a weird time in his career. I think that was around the time it could be the same year, but I could be wrong about this around the time that he stopped drinking. And oh, yes, yes. Like got yeah. kind of got his shit together. That's right. And yes, you're right. So I don't know if he was just like his career started in what, like the late 50s? Yeah. A stage actor, yeah, yeah, under so, um, uh, Richard Burton. So yeah. he, which is probably where he learned to drink, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, it's like he's. I feel like he probably wasn't big enough to say no to a Robert Wise movie at no, this point. No, of course not, because no. his career really hadn't taken. He was off best yet. known for the like British dramas, like um, All Creatures Great and Small. And yeah. So he was but, he was known, and those came over here as part of Masterpiece Theater and stuff. But this is but a Robert I, Wise movie, yeah. 
Yeah, so it's like he couldn't say no, but he just it, it's it's very weird for me to and as a kid, again, I think this goes back to my E.M. Forrester thing. I fucking love those Merchant Ivory movies. Mm-hmm. And even as a kid, like being as obsessed with horror movies as I as I was, if some of those Merchant Ivory movies came on TV, I was like, oh, well, I know what I'm going to do and not tell anyone <laughs> about. <laughs> so I associate him with with those like powerhouse roles. Sure. And it's weird to see him look so sad and sedate. And you're like, what happened to Anthony Hopkins yeah. here? Like what Robert Wise, what did you do to him? <laughs> like, <laughs> so, OK, um. Let us move on. Now, this will just be fun. Let's talk about, uh, I just came up with a list of other exorcist ripoffs, because that is how culturally Audrey Rose is classified, even though we have said it is clearly not that. So, uh, alphabetical order. Abby, 1974. We'll just talk about our connection. One of my favorite movies ever. I love William Girdler so much. When I saw Abby, I thought it was gonna be I, I don't know like at that point the only William Girdler movie I had seen was Grizzly and so uh-huh. I went into Abby not knowing anything about it and was like how has no one told me about this movie it's <laughs> <laughs> like a blaxploitation exorcist did you know Patty so um, did you know Patty Mollen who ran the William Girdler website no I mean she passed away a couple of years ago but she was awesome and oh. uh I mean, I, anyone who loves William yeah. Girdler is automatically a friend oh, of mine. She was so dedicated. <laughs> I saw um, I saw a 16 millimeter print of Abby in the backyard of Keith Crocker, who's the publisher of Exploitation Journal, That's hosted awesome. by Patty. So that was the best. That's awesome. Yeah. Anyone listening to this, if you have to choose one exorcist ripoff, <laughs> let it be Abby and not Audrey Rose. <laughs> good, good. Ben, you have an Abby story? I don't, but I do like that okay. movie. Antichrist, a.k.a. The Tempter. I don't know if I've seen that. The Italian Antichrist? The Italian one where the the lady licks the goat's asshole. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Way, way trashy and inept, but much more fun than Audrey Rose. Awesome. Yeah, great time. I love it. Commercials scared the shit out of me at 3 in the morning on Channel 5 (laughs) in like 1981. It was just that freaky lady, and it said, deliver her from evil. (laughs) Okay. Exorcism Negro, a.k.a. the Bloody Exorcism of Coffin Joe. Ooh. Another wonderful one. Yep. Great. Okay. House of Exorcism, uh, which is, of course, Mario Bava's Lisa and the Devil, juiced up by producer Alfred Leone I don't know if, don't know if we Leone can say it's Roberto juiced Bava. up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's, uh, it makes me so angry. Sure. I know so many people who are like, I watched this Baba movie, but it wasn't good. And I was like, what did you watch? Was right. it House of Exorcism? Because the, it's like Lisa and the devil was just raped and turned into wow. an exorcist ripoff. I fucking hate that version. Yeah. And I, I love Baba. He's one of my favorite of directors. Course. And Lisa and the devil is incredible. But like, don't watch that cut. I, I have to agree, and um, I didn't even know until the Lease of the Devil DVD came out, whenever that was, 15 years ago or something. Um, and then House of Exorcism, uh, I always like to point out, is on the marquee in Los Angeles, along with Messiah of Evil in Annie Hall. Yeah. As Woody Allen going, look at these trashy people. <laughs> <laughs> no, he loved them. And that's right. I've been Woody. And that's, you know, I love him, and I love that movie. Um, Satan, a.k.a. Turkish Exorcist. It's wild. 
amazing. <laughs> it's so wild. Magdalena. I don't know if I've ever seen Magdalena. I've not seen it. No. Do you know what year it's from? 74. Sorry, 74. Yeah, well, I guess we all have a homework assignment. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's a poster that we will all recognize. Uh, I don't want to be born, a.k.a. Sharon's baby. Talk about I, posters. I love this movie. It's so great. I watched this probably four or five years ago. Maybe, no, maybe sooner than that, because... I do this thing every October where I try to watch horror movies I've never seen because mm -hmm. I tend to be a very compulsive rewatcher and I just like want to watch my favorite movies over and over again. Yeah. But I think I came across that movie under the title like The Devil Inside Her. That's or what something. it is, The Devil Inside Her, yeah. It has so many it has like five different yeah. titles, but if you look it up as Sharon's baby, you will get the right movie. It's like a stripper is cursed by a dwarf who wants <laughs> yeah. to fuck her and right. she gets pregnant by her boyfriend who she's trying to marry and she's like a little bit of a gold digger and so when the dwarf curses her she <laughs> she has it's it's like it's alive which i know you guys just did and yes, i'm a did. huge fan of the whole series and of larry cohen but it's almost like if somebody made like it's alive but the gestation <laughs> as, as like wow, a British what, exploitation again, movie. Perfect, perfectly nailed it, Sam D. <laughs> and that poster is one of the craziest oh, things you'll ever see. It's, so it's a good. fist holding a pair of scissors that has baby legs. <laughs> but like really ultra realistically painted. It's so good. Okay, Night Child, aka Together Forever. 75. I've never seen that. I've only ever seen the trailer. The trailer is pretty cool. Uh, Black Magic, a.k.a. Jadu Tona from 1977, a Bollywood film. I've never I've not seen, seen it. it. Uh, the Manitou. Oh, the Manitou boy. is one of my favorite movies. I agree. Again, William Girdler. Uh, yep. Last, so earlier I mentioned Exhumed Films for probably uh, over 10 years now. They've been doing this thing every Halloween where they do a 24-hour horror fest. Oh, and nice. last year was their very last one. And one of the like 4 a.m. slot was the Manitou and I think I was the only person who like screamed when it, <laughs> when it came on because all of the all the programming is secret so wow, it's like wow, wow, you don't know great. what you're about to see but that's watching awesome. the Manitou a couple days before Halloween on 35 millimeter is an experience I will never forget and Speaking of people repeating dialogue over and over again, <laughs> nobody does it better than Tony Curtis in that movie. <laughs> I saw that last probably at the at the music box at a midnight screening, and uh, we awesome. had a couple of mystery science theater fans in the audience. Oh, I hope I you beheaded to, them all. Well, no, I had to. I truly got up, and of course, it's the music box, so I am the toughest guy there. I wouldn't have done this like at the City North or anything. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And somebody at one point, somebody said, "What's today? Thursday?" And and somebody said, "No, it's Friday." And I I got up, walked over, and I pointed. I said, "Seriously, shut the fuck up!" And uh, this big nerdy guy in the back went, "Thank you." I mean, I can't handle that. No, I have no, zero no, tolerance no, for it. No, zero tolerance. That's it. Okay, Nurse Sherry. Oh, oh Nurse, Sher Nurse Sherry is, is ridiculous. Yes, we covered that on uh, Crackpot Cinema. You sure Wait, did. is Nurse Sherry really Al Adamson? Yeah, yeah. 
Huh. We did that with Brian Sauer from Rupert Pumpkin and uh, nice. Pure Cinema. And now finally, for you, Sam, Malabimba, the malicious whore. Fuck yeah. <laughs> now, didn't you do the commentary on this? Yeah. Uh, Kat and Heather and I oh, did sh- the, the commentary. Yes, for the recent Vinegar the unholy Syndrome release. Three. <laughs> we are. <laughs> I mean, Malabimba is just probably the single most insane movie on that list that yeah. you just gave. I would agree. Even though, like, Sharon's Baby... And Abby are both pretty fucking nuts, but nothing compares to Malabimba. Right. Can I put and in Turkish a exorcist? Can I put in a plug for a recent example of that female uncanny genre that you were mentioning yeah. with the falling, Sam? Uh, there's an American independent film from 2015 called The Fits, which is sort of that same story, but it's with uh, uh, these African American girls who are on a dance team, and and they start having these fainting spells, and it's not quite wow. sure why. I like that. that. Sounds, I love the name too. We yeah, showed it at the festival awesome. in 2015. It's on Amazon Prime right now. The Fits. It's really good and Everybody it's nice go. and short too. So, fantastic. All right, so we have about uh, ten minutes left. Um, ben, you want to run through what else was playing in New York? Yeah. So Audrey Rose opened on Wednesday, April sixth, nineteen seventy-seven, which I think is a particularly fun time to look at what was in theaters because this is yeah. it. This is the last moment of time before star wars hit exactly and changed oh. movies forever the, ruin, the ruination of everything so in april on april 6 1977 which was a wednesday you could in new york um and and vincent canby's review of audrey rose came out the next day on <laughs> thursday and it's even for canby it's so snarky it's hilarious. every line's it's a zinger really we should we'll post that on facebook and, it's really good uh, yeah, yeah you have to um, but you could have seen The Late Show uh, with Art Carney and Lily Tomlin, which I did. A huge did movie see. at the yeah. time, largely forgotten now. Yeah. Produced by Robert Altman, written and directed by Robert Benton. Right. Um, at the. Um, oh, there was. The, well, Disney Disney's Happy Holiday Show, which I guess was Easter. For this Easter. was coming up on yeah. Easter. Uh, Freaky Friday and a special Easter treat. <laughs> Uh, Peter Pan. So that's the Freaky Friday with oh, Jodie Foster and two, Barbara two Harris. Delights. Those are treats. As I've said on previous episodes, the best adaptation of Freaky Friday available. And there are three of them, not two, like everyone thinks. <laughs> Disney has What's got, the third there's one? A, there's a more recent, more recent than the Jamie Lee Curtis and Lindsay Lohan one. Disney, I think it probably premiered on the Disney Channel. But there's a Disney Channel version of Freaky Friday, which might even be a musical. I'm not sure. I tried to watch wow. it. I couldn't Yikes. take it. But it's probably on that stupid Disney <laughs> streaming thing now if you want sam did you ever read the freaky friday book when you were a kid no i didn't even know there was oh, yeah. so good it's great it is hilarious it was a I... book that truly made me laugh out loud repeatedly as a child for whatever reason i was way more into parent trap than freaky friday like i was a kid who definitely grew up with the disney channel so right. i wound up seeing a lot of like 50s and 60s and 70s movies that they would rerun sure, like the best. Swiss Family yeah. Robinson. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll say this. Walt Disney overnight. Do you remember that when they would just kind of show anything? Yeah. Yeah, they had some weird programming. They especially had some weird stuff during Halloween which I loved. Right, right. Um uh, I want to say as far as Lindsay Lohan remakes uh, of of good movies like Freaky Friday and Parent Trap I think her version of Parent Trap is pretty great, and she's amazing. I haven't it. seen it. Oh, you need to. Lindsay I have Lohan. seen it. I like <laughs> it, but the original is 
very dear to my heart. It, it is. Yeah, I, I have a soft spot. I'm not for saying it. it's yeah. better than the original. I'm just saying right, it's better right. than the Lindsay Lohan Parent Trap, which I mean, Lindsay Lohan's Freaky Friday, which my daughter loves right. more than the original Freaky Friday. It's not it's, good. It's Ben's daughter's birthday, by That's the way. Right. So happy birthday! That's why I have a hard happy out birthday. in like eight minutes. Uh, yeah. So what time? You, what, how old is Lily today? Twenty. Whoa! Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Okay. But for a buck, you could see Carrie at the Playboy Theater. And for, a, good. and for a buck fifty at the seventy second Street East, you could see the Sentinel. So it was kind of a yeah. nice, a crazy Fun time times. for it. Uh, King Kong was playing. A second, Still going. Is that was is it said second Smash Week? So is that a re-release or was that must be the okay. re-release? Yeah. Um, and Audrey Rose was opening uh, not wide. It opened like a two theater, three theaters in Manhattan, and then Long Island and New Jersey. It didn't seem like it had same as Philly. It was like five theaters. It was like two in the city and then three in the suburbs, yeah. Um, Rocky was still in theaters for some reason. Welcome to L.A. was in theaters. Uh, Fun with Dick and Jane, which I watched again recently and is no good. But I remember enjoying it as a kid. Airport 77 was in theaters. Black Sunday <laughs> was that. in theaters. Yes. Uh, starts Friday, so was opening the two days after Audrey I- Rose was Julie Christie in The Demon Seed. Damn. Yes. <laughs> I love Demon Seed. Yes. So we want to switch to Philadelphia. Yeah, do it. Switch. <laughs> Sam, you weren't you weren't alive, but I wasn't alive. <laughs> okay. But It's Alive was playing yes. in Philadelphia. Yes. Uh, Jonah, who who will be twenty five in the year two thousand, a title that's always kind of intrigued me. A movie I finally I've never saw. Seen it, but the title's great. I finally yes. saw it last year. It's actually a good movie. Uh, good noted. Muhammad, the messenger of God, was still playing in Philadelphia after it caused a terrorist attack in New York. Whoa. Uh, the porn film, The Naughty Victorians. Nice. I think Vinegar Syndrome put that out yeah. recently. Yeah. Um, a porn film I've never heard of called New York City Woman with, with John Holmes and Georgina Spelvin. Interesting. Uh, the Slipper in the Rose, a Cinderella, Cinderella remake. Uh, Bruce Lee, double feature, Enter the Dragon and the Chinese Connection. And the bizarre Raggedy Ann and Andy animated musical. It's a weird weekend. It is. A wonderful. I know Kayla Janice is a big fan of, of that Raggedy Ann and Andy movie. It's a wonderful. I've never seen it. No, I've never watched all of it. Oh, but, I've but seen you it. Look at it on YouTube and it's wild. Oh, I've seen it. It's amazing. Um, and I, I want to talk quickly about uh, the two other ads that I sent. Uh, oh, yeah. My fellow participants. So well, while you're looking for those, one, oh, go ahead. I got them. Okay, okay. <laughs> loaded. Uh, live X-rated nude show. Five beautiful live nude girls doing New York style burlesque. Continuous show. Blah blah blah. And it goes on. We trade books, films. Six thirteen Black Horse Park, Mount Ephraim, New Jersey. So um, Mount Ephraim is not far Ephraim, from here, right? And there, it's. On a stretch where there are plenty of porn bookstores. Sure. Some okay. of them are still open. Right. But they don't even give like a, the name of the place. And it reminded me in the early 90s on 42nd Street, there was there was a peep show called Live Nude Models Working Their Way Through College. That was the actual name painted <laughs> on the market. Wow. It's quite possible that this place was called Live Nude Girls. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. And then at the, uh, the truck... You can't pin medals on Edi Amin, and that's spelled E-D-I-E-A-H-M-E-A-N. You need to post that. Jungle oh, goddess, nude exotics. Don't forget, Tuesday is camera day. 
Wow. Does that mean you're allowed to bring your own camera and take That's pictures? exactly what it means, Sam Deegan. Unbelievable. That's um, amazing. They tell us about the truck. <laughs> you said it closed recently. Yeah, so the truck is a Philadelphia institution that's been around since like the 10s or the 20s, I want to say. Wow. And it was, it's a really beautiful old theater, mm-hmm. but it's it's in Chinatown. Um I don't quite know when they stopped doing burlesque there, but for most of my life, there have been shows there. They would do like dollar movie nights on Mondays. Oh, that's so cool. It is, but it's one of my least favorite places to see shows in the city. It's just like it's set up for live stage shows. It's not really convenient for music. So... Like, while I am historically sad that it's closing, it's like, thank God I'll never have to see another show at the truck. Although maybe I'll never see another show ever again. So I felt that exact same way about Maxwell's uh, in Jersey City, in Hoboken. In uh, uh, Hoboken. I was like, yeah, Yeah. it's the it's, you know, it's had the most amazing bands, but it's uh, I always hated seeing shows there. So I only ever had a good loud. time there because I was out of my mind drunk, and uh, I've only ever had a good time in Philadelphia, drunk and not drunk. So. <laughs> I mean, no WC we have fields. fun here. You really do. And, sometimes, uh, sometimes we don't know when to stop having fun, and like for some reason, Philadelphians love setting cars on fire. Yeah. <laughs> anytime, <laughs> anytime a sports team wins, right? Cars are set on fire. This week, because of the rioting that I mentioned earlier, yeah. cars are on fire. It's wow. like they they climb buildings, they climb telephone poles, they set cars on fire, and. If they're really worked up, then we set cop cars on fire, which wow. has happened a fair amount this year. I would imagine, yeah. And deservedly so. Yeah. Can I end the show with a mention yep. of something that premiered on network television on Wednesday, April 6th, the same night that Audrey Rose hit the theaters in New York? Mike, you might get Please. excited about this. Uh, also deals with child death and trauma. Uh, Mark Singer in Something for Joey. Something for Joey. Do you know that movie, Sam? I don't. We have to have Amanda uh, Reyes from uh, Made for TV Mayhem on to talk about that. It is a uh, a sports movie about a guy who is playing the football game of his life for his little brother who's dying. Of leukemia. That sounds cheerful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sounds riveting. <laughs> well, once again, Sam Deegan, a champion, just the greatest. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me and letting ben me Reiser. yammer on. Thank you. You made this a wonderfully entertaining episode about a movie that is Thank not you. Do you mind if we use some video anything. clips? Not at all. Um, awesome. I also just, I wanted to say earlier and didn't get to, I think instead of watching Audrey Rose, you should just watch the scenes of Donald Sutherland's butt and don't look now and you'll have a much better time. <laughs> and I think, uh, what about his butt in Animal House? Yeah. Oh, well, that that's great too. But, <laughs> but you get to see I Julie. I just love Donald Sutherland. Sure. But, and there is that one sequence in Audrey Rose, which is a complete don't look now ripoff, where she's following that who she thinks is Ivy around in the ring. Oh, yeah. right. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, yeah. no, you're so right. It's so maddening. Yeah. I was so frustrated yeah. when yeah. I noticed that this time right. around. Like, damn it. Yeah. And they, they weren't in Venice, so they said it in the rain instead. All right, happy birthday, Lily. Oh, thanks. I will she'll I'll I'll please I'll make pass sure that, that gets into the episode. Yeah. Make sure <laughs> make sure your gift to her is that she doesn't have to watch Audrey Rose. Oh, that's guaranteed. <laughs> that's a father's love. Yes. 